Romans 13, starting at verse 11. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Loving Father, we pray this morning that you would impress upon our hearts the power of these exhortations. Father, that you would shake us up and wake us up and that we would recognize that the time has passed for us to coast and it's time for us to lay aside the deeds of darkness and to put on the armor of light that we may be useful for your eternal purposes. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'm going to ask our young people, our youth and young adults, if you're, if you're in a corner someplace where it's easy for you to fall asleep, I'm going to ask you to move a little bit forward. This message, this passage, has been been piercing my heart all week, and my prayer is that it may pierce you as well, not just the uh, but all of us. I got up uh, well before the break of dawn this morning. I always set my alarm to wake me up early on Sunday mornings so I can think through the passage a bit more and I can lay it at, at the Lord's feet. And today, just like every other day, I found that my very favorite part of my alarm clock is the snooze button. I always set my alarm about 10 minutes before I actually... And then I have that great feeling when the alarm first goes off that I can just reach over and pop that button and conk out again for another 10 minutes. (laughs) Of course, 10 minutes might as well be 10 seconds because (laughs) the very next thing I'm conscious of is the next sounding of the alarm. But when it goes off the second time, I know I can't afford to hit the button again. Now, do you guys ever uh, hit the snooze or maybe hit it too, too many times? <laughs> and you realize that you can't hit it again. In fact, you realize you're going to be scrambling to get ready for work and you're going to have to skip some of your, part, your uh, morning routine. Your sense of urgency goes way up because you realize that you're already past the time when you should have gotten up. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul puts all of the exhortations that he's laid before us in chapters 12 and 13 into that very context. He tells us that when it comes to waking up and being fully engaged in God's agenda, in God's assignment, the alarm has already gone off. There is no Paul begins verse 11 
by saying, and this do. The word do is italicized in most of your Bibles because it is not in the original Greek. But it seems clearly implied by the rest of what follows. This passage is all about doing. In fact, these two chapters are all about doing. The phrase, and this, or and that, is the same here as we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. When Paul uses that phrase without tying it directly to a verb, he typically means, there's something more that I need to add to what I've been saying. Something important. I believe Paul uses the phrase here to introduce a critically important corollary to everything he's been saying since chapter 12, verse 1. The operative word in verse 11 is the word knowing. Paul is saying you are to do all that I've been talking about knowing something, bearing something in mind, and that which you are to bear in mind is that it is already already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Now this this combination of that which we must know and that which we must do is, of course, very consistent in Paul's writings. If you go back to chapter 6, for instance, Paul said that it is because we know that we have been baptized with Christ in the likeness of his death and because we know that we have been raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection to newness of life, therefore, on the basis of that knowledge, we are to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And we are to submit the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness, as slaves to God. Here in chapter 13, Paul is saying that we are to do all the things he has been exhorting us to do ever since Romans 12.1 with the knowledge that the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. That knowledge is supposed to dramatically impact our mindset and our actions in the little bit of time that remains to us before Christ returns. And what is the this that we're supposed to be already doing? Well, Paul just spent a couple of chapters giving us practical detail for two exhortations that he gave us in the first two verses of chapter 12. And those exhortations, of course, were, First, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. So the first exhortation was to present ourselves to God. The second... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove that which is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So those core exhortations were to present ourselves as sacrifices and to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. He then, in chapter 12, verse 3 through 13, 10, has been laying out for us practical exhortations that go to how those two key commandments are to be played out in our lives, what that looks like when we do them. He tells us, he told us that we are to humbly and diligently apply the measure of faith and the spiritual gifts that God has given to us for the building up of the body of Christ. He told us that we are to let our love be without hypocrisy, that we are never to repay evil for evil, that we are to 
is evil and we are to overcome with good. He told us we are to willingly submit ourselves to governing authorities as an act of submission to God himself. He told us that we are to owe nothing to others except to love. And he told us that love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, at the end of chapter 13, he says, and there's one more thing. Do it now, not later. He doesn't say, it's almost time to wake up. He says that time has already come. This is an exceedingly simple concept, but it's one that seems elusive to us. How many times do you wake up in the morning and you give yourself just barely enough seconds (laughs) to throw yourself together and to get to work before the time clock at the office hits the top of the hour? But what if it was the wee hours of the morning before daylight and you knew that it was the very last night of your earthly existence? What if you knew that as soon as the sun came up, your time on this earth would end? Paul paints a vivid picture here that's intended to shake us up. He says the sum total of whatever time you have remaining here on this earth is like the very last part of one single night. As you anticipate the rising of the sun. And he says, don't wait until you see the sun coming in the window. Because that will be too late for your remaining actions to make a difference for eternity. He says, wake up now and get with it. But what if your understanding of biblical eschatology, of how things are going to play out in the end times, leads you to the conclusion that, that you're going to see lots of warning signs before Jesus actually returns? Why not just hit the snooze button and check again later to see if the warning signs are piling up, and then you'll know that it's time to get up and get busy? Isn't there going to be plenty of time to get serious about Carrying out the Lord's work when we know it's a little closer to His coming. What if you believe that the rapture, the catching up of the saints into the clouds to be with Christ forever that's spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4 will take you out of harm's way before things really get bad? Can't you just chill until Jesus comes in the clouds and snatches you up to glory? Why do you have to worry and 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 be burdened by a bunch of work. Well, whatever your understanding of how events will unfold just before Christ comes back, Paul makes it clear that that whole mindset that it's okay to snooze until things get really bad is utter foolishness in the mind of God. His emphatic point here is that it is already... It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. And he adds, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The salvation he's talking about is that full and final and comprehensive salvation that will occur on the day that we stand sinless in the presence of our Master and Savior. It's the day that will also bring about the restoration of all 
of God's creation, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 8. He's talking about the day that will bring about the undoing of the curse. He says in verse 12, The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. And the phrase at hand means it's very, very near. When Paul talks about the night, he's referring to the present cursed condition of mankind and of all creation. And when he talks about the day, he's talking about that day I just mentioned. The coming, final, and complete redemption of God's people and of God's creation. He talked earlier in Romans 8, verses 18 to 25, about the sufferings of this present time. He said those sufferings will end for all of creation when we, the children of God, are finally revealed. When we enter into our inheritance as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, that is glorification day. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. And some translations render it this present darkness. It's against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In Galatians 1 verse 4, Paul says, The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. This present darkness, this present evil age, this is the world system in its present cursed condition. Revelation 21 tells us the day is coming when there will be no more night. When the glory of God and of the Lamb will be our light, our only light, and all the light that we need. But for now... You and I who are of the light are in the darkness. And we are called to be lights in this present darkness. Every minute that we spend hiding the light of Jesus Christ under a bushel is a minute that the dark world around us remains in darkness. We are not here to bide our time until Jesus comes back. We are not here to snooze until the day we die or Christ returns to snatch us up. We are here to be useful for his eternal purposes, for every moment that remains to us. Beloved, we are slaves, not slumberers. (laughs) Slaves wake up early and they work diligently to serve their masters. Slaves don't have vacations or retirement plans, or personal agendas. They live to fulfill their master's agenda. Now, there are some things you might potentially get back in this life if you squander them or waste them. You might get money back after a while. You might get health back if you've, if you've suffered a setback in your health. You might even manage to get a relationship back with somebody that you've alienated. You might even recover from a loss of respect or trust over time if you get your act together and you behave respectably and in a trustworthy manner for a while and if God gives you the time to do that. But you will never get back the time that you have thrown away. It's gone for all eternity. Do you ever find yourself thinking, and I mentioned this before, 
God should be satisfied with my baby steps. After all, this whole Christian maturity thing takes time, doesn't it? God is forbearing, so as long as I'm not going backwards, he should be satisfied, right? Well, what does this passage tell you about that mindset? It's bogus. It's foolishness. God says, wake up. Paul says, Romans 13, at the second half of verse 12, Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the weapons of light. Now, what are the deeds of darkness that we're supposed to lay aside? Well, Paul gives us a partial list in verse 13. I know it's a partial list because he gave us a much longer and more comprehensive list in Romans chapter 1 of the kinds of actions that proceed from degrading passions and from a depraved mind. Here, the list is very abbreviated. It's just six things. And I believe this list represents three categories of behavior. I agree with Thomas Schreiner's commentary. He says there are three major categories of evil deeds here that are representative sins of representing major types of sin. And there are three pairs. The first is carousing and drunkenness. And that has to do with sins of excess and of self-indulgence. See, God gives us many good things to enjoy. He gives us things like food and wine and friends. (laughs) But rather than treating God's gracious provision of physical and personal pleasures as things to be enjoyed in a manner that doesn't distract us from devotion to God, we cast moderation to the wind And we take in those earthly provisions with abandon, utterly forgetting or denying God in the process. The second pair of sins is sexual promiscuity and sensuality. That's fairly self-explanatory. This has to do with sins of self-gratification, sexual self-gratification. The third pair, strife and jealousy, has to do with self-serving sins that create animosity and division between people. You can contrast that with what Paul said earlier about giving preference to one another in honor. These sins give preference to self at the expense of others. Now what do those three categories of sin have in common? In one word, self. In all the exhortations in chapters 12 and 13, Paul has made it clear that the transformed life is never self-focused. The redeemed child of God whose life is presented to God as a sacrifice applies his God-given faith and his spiritual gifts to the service of God's people, the body of Christ. That person is devoted to the brethren in brotherly love. His love is without hypocrisy. He blesses those who persecute him. He he never repays evil for evil. He never seeks his own vengeance. Instead, he seeks the well-being even of his enemies. He willingly submits to the authorities that God has placed over him. And because he loves as he has been loved by God, he does no wrong to a neighbor and his love fulfills law. Those are the deeds of light. Those are the weapons of light. And those 
deeds always and in all respects focus on God and on our fellow man, never on ourselves. But the deeds of darkness are just as consistently and just as steadfastly focused on self as the deeds of light are focused on others. They're all about self without regard to God or our fellow men. They destroy relationship with God and they destroy relationship with each other. The contrast here between light and darkness is not merely metaphorical. It's also eminently practical. In other words, Paul is not merely saying that darkness is a metaphor for evil and light is a metaphor for good. As Schreiner very succinctly points out, they're called works of darkness because people do them in secret. People do them in the darkness. Paul makes this connection very directly in Ephesians 5, where he says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And then look at what he says. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Along with asking whether your actions are self-focused or other-focused, here's another very practical and very simple litmus test. If you have to hide it, it's sin. As with any such principle, there are exceptions, like wrapping a present for your wife in the bedroom or planning a surprise party for your child. But the unselfish exceptions are self-evident. The principle is simple and we can make no excuses for missing it. If you have to hide something because those from whom you're hiding it would find it shameful, then guess what? It's shameful. It's sin, and you need to stop doing it. Men, if you're doing something that you feel you need to hide from your wife, stop doing it. It's sin. It doesn't matter how your mental gymnastics allow you to justify it. It means nothing to God for you to say, well, if my wife only really understood my needs, I wouldn't have to do this. Those justifications are as shameful as the act itself, and they only compound the sin. If you have to hide it, it's sin. Why not put that same energy and creativity into doing something for your wife? God has assigned us plenty of eternally constructive things to do to replace the sinful ones. Uh, And those things will give us joy, not guilt, and they will build up our marriages rather than tearing them down. If you're an employee who works in front of a computer all day like most do in America, and you've got something on your computer that requires you to click off of it when your boss or a co-worker comes near your desk, stop doing it because it's sin. That applies whether it's pornography or solitaire or Amazon.com or cute kitty videos or job job search sites or Facebook or anything else that doesn't accomplish the task that you're being paid to do. If it were appropriate for you to be doing it, you would not have to hide it. Apply the same time and energy to doing something productive instead. 
I saw a study when I was still at VentureNet a couple of years ago that said that on average, the, the average employee in corporate America spends two hours of paid time each day on recreational Internet activity. That's a fourth of the day. Can you imagine what would happen to America's gross domestic product if we could reclaim a fourth of every person's workday? Doesn't matter if everybody else is doing it, guys. We're the agents of God. Kids, if you're doing something you have to hide from your parents, <laughs> stop doing it. It's sin. It's driving a wedge between you and your parents even if they don't know about it because the attitude that you have in doing it damages your relationship with your parents. God has all kinds of eternally constructed things for you to be doing. Find one of those and do that instead. When I was a pretty young believer, I went to a seminar by Dr. Howard Hendricks, who recently went to be with the Lord. And one segment of that seminar was about the test of a virile private life. Those were his words. And the punchline of that particular segment is that a virile private life is defined based on what you do when only you and God see it. And that raises another valuable test. Would you be happy for Jesus to see you doing what you're doing if he were standing in the room with you or if he could read your mind? You know what? He's already doing both. He's here. He is in our midst. He is with us. And according to Psalm 139, he knows what you're going to say before it ever gets to your lips. He sees everything. And by the way, there is one thing God loves for you to do in secret. You know what that is? Pray. This little book, I'm going to mention it again. I mentioned it before. Thomas Brooks, The Secret Key to Heaven. Well worth a read. Loaded with scripture that encourages us to go to God in prayer in secret. We are to lay aside the deeds of darkness, but Paul doesn't stop there. He says, we are to put on the armor of light. See, God never stops at telling us what we are not to do. <laughs> he always gives us something better, infinitely better to replace it with. Here he tells us to replace darkness with light. You don't get a starker contrast than that. The, uh, the, he says, if the deeds, uh, well, he says, put on the armor, the weapons of light. And I want to mention the fact that the word armor here is plural in the Greek. It's the same word that Paul used in Romans 6.13 when he commanded us to present the members of our bodies as instruments or weapons of righteousness. It's the same word he used in 2 Corinthians 10.4 when he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. If the deeds of darkness are works that have to be done in secret because they're shameful, the works that const constitute the weapons of light are those that do not need to be hidden. In fact, they must not be hidden. The deeds of light expose the deeds of darkness. And this is where Paul's choice of words highlights the proactive nature of godly light. He contrasts 
works of darkness with weapons of light. I already cited part of Ephesians 5. Uh, that passage is strongly tied to this one. Look at how Paul contrasts the deeds of darkness with the weapons of light here. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. And then the next thing he says is similar to what he said in Romans 13. He says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Darkness is the absence of light. Darkness accomplishes nothing. But light overcomes darkness. Light exposes the things that are engulfed in the darkness, and it's very, very good when that happens. Paul says, put on the weapons of light. Okay, what are those weapons? Well, Paul has a lot to say about armor or weaponry in the Christian life and some other passages. One of them is Ephesians 6, where he, talks, he tells us to take up the full armor of God in order to be able to resist the world forces of this darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places while we're still in this evil day. And the word he uses there in Ephesians 6 for armor is different than he uses here, but it's a word that, it, that speaks of the entire panoply, the whole set of weapons that a well-equipped soldier bears. And that includes truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, Salvation, the Word of God, and if you keep going in that passage, it includes diligent and constant prayer. In short, the armaments of God include everything that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Everything that reflects His character, everything that nurtures our relationship with Him and our usefulness to Him. But I believe the primary reason that Paul doesn't provide detail here in Romans 13 about the identity of the weapons of light is because he already has. <laughs> to put on the weapons of light is to do everything that he's been talking about. It is to render yourself as a sacrifice to God, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to work out that submission and transformation in all the ways that Paul has exhorted in these two chapters. Beloved, we have plenty of information about our assignment. There is no reason for us to flounder around wondering what it is that we're supposed to be doing. It's time for us to wake up and be fully engaged in doing that which we have been clearly given to do by God. Paul says, he concludes this passage with two additional imperatives that are very clarifying. He says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Those last two imperatives are telling us to put on the new man and starve out the old man. If we applied those two very straightforward tests 
to the things that we're about to do, it would dramatically change many of our activities. (laughs) Does it put on Christ? In other words, does it manifest His character? Who He is? And does it make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts? That last negative exhortation is like a blast from a sawed-off shotgun. It blows a hole in our ridiculous justifications for our flirtations with sin. He says, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. The attitude of the heart that's implicit in that statement is not, let me see how close I can get to the boundaries that God has drawn so I don't get into serious trouble. It's the polar opposite of that. The attitude Paul is talking about is, let me stay as far away from those boundaries as I can for the glory of God. When we hear the word lusts, we think sexual sins. But when Paul refers to the flesh in regard to its lusts, he's talking about all of the things to which our flesh, our old sin nature gravitates. He's talking about all the things that appeal to the fallen nature we inherited from Adam. The godly attitude to which he's exhorting us here echoes that of King David in Psalm 101, verse 3. This is a good one to commit to memory. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who have fallen away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Is the thing that you're beholding or the thing that you're about to do worthless in the eyes of God or is it eternally valuable? And where did it come from? Is it the work of God and thus embraced by the people of God? Or is it the work of those who fall away? We should be very wary of embracing the things that this world finds attractive and entertaining. Some of the things the world enjoys are not sinful unless they're done in excess and they crowd out devotion to God. But it's becoming more and more the case that what the world gets excited about is not morally neutral, it is morally repugnant. Are we supposed to be having a good time if we're friends of the world? Well, James emphatically says no. In James 4, verses 4 through 10, I don't have a slide on this, but just listen. He says, you adulteresses. That should get our attention. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God and whoever wants to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell within us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit Therefore, to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So the answer is no. We're not supposed to be having a good time if we're friends of the world.
Lovers of darkness don't like light. And God will not permit those who are of the light to find satisfaction or joy or peace in the darkness. As soon as we read words like, be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom, our sin nature crosses the wires and it says, okay, well then, obedience to God is burdensome. No. Obedience to God is joyful and purposeful and peaceful and powerful. Disobedience is burdensome. James is saying, if you belong to God and you've allowed yourself to become complacent about being a friend of the world, then the most appropriate thing that you could possibly do is to mourn over your own disloyalty, your spiritual adultery, and your violation of the character of the one who redeemed you. That's not the normal Christian life. That's what we're supposed to do when we've turned our back on the things of the Lord. And that all matches up perfectly with what we've seen over and over in this epistle. In chapter 5, Paul said that we have a hope that does not disappoint. A hope that is fortified, not threatened by the tribulations that we face in this life. And in Romans 8, he clarified what real hope is when he said, In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. We talked about this before, but it's critically important. If your hope is fixed on anything in the here and now, anything you can get your hands on, anything that you can see with your physical eyes, then it is a hope that will certainly disappoint. Whether it's a fat retirement account or plenty of free time or a perfect physique, I shouldn't point at myself there, or alcohol, or drugs, or sex, or food, or power, or any of the other things that the world looks to for hope in the here and now. If your hope is fixed on such things, it cannot be fixed on Christ, and God will not make it pleasant for you. God will not allow his children to find joy in those things because if he did, he would be unloving and God is not unloving. Those things are death to us. They are not life. But there's another reason God has no intention of letting us find satisfaction in the dark. It's a reason that is much more primary than the impact of those things on us. And that reason is that we have an assignment. That reason is that we are here as God's agents. We lay aside the deeds of darkness and we put on the armor of light because we are doing battle daily against every every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. We wake up every morning behind enemy lines in a world that is engulfed in darkness. And we are here to shine forth the light of Jesus Christ And of God's truth, in the midst of that darkness, we are not to be overcome by evil. We are to overcome evil with good. We are not to be overcome by darkness. We are to overcome darkness with light. I lead a weekly home Bible study with a group of college-age guys and girls. 
It's been going on for four years by the grace of God, and we have some really great discussions. Recently, after the legalization of marijuana took effect in Colorado and Washington, we had a pretty vigorous discussion about whether it's hypocritical to keep marijuana illegal in Texas when something as culturally damaging as alcohol has been illegal for so long. After listening to their discussion for a while and after exploring with them the pros and cons of that debate from a pragmatic standpoint, I finally reached a threshold and I kind of went off on them. After venting for a while, I, I apologized for getting so heated in my response. But as I look back on that discussion, I believe the point that I was trying to make with them was appropriate. So I'll try to do a controlled burn version of that same statement at this point. What I essentially said to that dear group of young believers whom I love with all my heart and what I say to the young believers in this body whom I love with all my heart is that when there are brothers and sisters in Christ around you who are hurting or simply in need of the spiritual gifts that God gave you so that they can be encouraged and built up to walk in a manner worthy of their calling in Christ, when there are people around you, all around you, who are lost and dead in their sins and who are headed toward eternal separation from God, you cannot afford to be drunk or stoned or distracted or sidetracked by anything. I came home from church one Sunday recently after teaching, after having only had about three hours sleep the night before. And I got home, and just about the time I was ready to sit down in my recliner and hopefully catch a snooze, I got a phone call. And that phone call was from a dear brother, and he said to me in tears, he said, my wife is walking out the door, and she says she is never coming back. And he pleaded with me. He said, can you try to get here while she's still gathering up her things? And so I left and I jumped in my car and I prayed every second of the way over there, knowing that my feeble words were nothing unless God made them useful. And I prayed that his wife would stay there long enough for me to get there. When I arrived, his wife was kind of surprised to see me. I think she was a little resentful that he had called me. But she was gracious. We came in. She sat, she and my friend sat down at a table. And we talked, and we prayed, and we cried together for an hour and a half. And at the end of that time, both of them confessed how they had been selfishly contributing to the sabotage of their marriage. And they agreed that they wanted to commit before God to each focus on their own assignment from God and quit worrying about the other person's assignment. That was several months ago, and as far as I know, They're still striving to do things God's way in their marriage. So what does that incident have to do with getting high? (laughs) Here's my point. If you want to be useful to God on His schedule, get ready to be surprised. A lot. If you want to be useful to God as His agent to respond when any need arises to heal His body, or to build up His body, or to appoint lost people to the Savior. You cannot afford to be drunk, or stoned, or distracted, or sidetracked by anything. 
We're not here for us. We're here for him. So maybe the burn's not so controlled. The days are evil and the days are few. I'm going to go to Ephesians 5 one more time. Some of this we already read. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You know what it means to dissipate something? It means to scatter it or spread it thin or water it down so that it loses its density and its intensity. We are not here to be distracted or dissipated. We are here to be filled at all times with the Spirit to overflowing. For Christ's sake and for the sake of those whose lives Christ intends for us to touch. We're here to be sold out to God's agenda and useful for His purposes all day, every day, and yeah, even in the middle of the night when He needs us. The days are evil and the days are few. So God calls us to make the most of the little bit of time that we have remaining here. Beloved, we have one legitimate indulgence, and his name is Jesus Christ. He gave his all to make us his own. And he owns the time that we have left here. So why don't we stop withholding it from him? When we finally get to see clearly from an eternal perspective we're not going to miss any of the things that vie for our time and our attention and our affection this side of heaven. It is no sacrifice to set aside that which cannot profit for the sake of that which profits for eternity. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to close with one stanza of a great poem by the 19th century British missionary C.T. Studd. He was one of the guys who worked with Hudson Taylor with China Inland Mission. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Loving Father, we pray that your light would pierce this darkness. We pray 
that your light would penetrate every dark corner in our hearts and in our lives. And then that you would convict us and convince us to constantly put on and keep on the weaponry of light that we might expose the things in darkness to the glorious light of our God. Father, we pray that you would remind us that the time to wake up has already come. And that we would be about your work at all times. We know that in this we find the greatest joy. But Father, above that, we know that in this we are vessels of honor in your hands. We pray these things in your name and we pray them for the sake of our Savior and our Master. Amen.